Welcome to the People, Purpose, and Profits Business Coaching Podcast with Brian Buck and Kat Park. Welcome everybody to the People, Purpose, and Profits Business Coaching Podcast. My name is Brian Buck and my co-host is... Coach Kat. And we are so excited to welcome my friend and soon to be yours, Teresa Quinlan. <laughs> you want to go ahead and give yourself a little introduction there, Teresa? That's kind of the best introduction on the planet. <laughs> soon to be your friend, Teresa Quinlan. Let's just go with that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, technically, yeah, technically, you know, I, I'm an entrepreneur and I work in the space of emotional intelligence and leadership development. It has by far been the best year and a half of my life was stepping into this as work because it was the, my favorite thing to do in my corporate job. Um, being my own boss, I think is something that I was born to also do. And my mother would attest to the fact that, yeah, you should have done that a long time ago because it just seems that I do better when I don't need to have not just instructions from other people, but uh, barriers from other people. I just rather not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things actually, I don't know if you and I have talked about this because we've been friends for a couple of years at this point, but mm -hmm. I have an entrepreneur friend uh, and I thought it was funny when he said this and he said uh, at this point, because he's been an entrepreneur for 20 years and he said, I'm unemployable. And I thought, <laughs> that's <laughs> funny. But when I was in the corporate job and started coaching and I was getting feedback from my clients and arranging from their clients, and then I had a manager who was giving me advice that wasn't based off of what the clients need. And I was like, I don't need you. And I went, oh my goodness, I just became unemployable. <laughs> There's definitely something about having that sense of independence and being directly connected to what your customers need and adjusting and serving them that sometimes that middle person thing doesn't always make sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the word efficiency is to minimize waste. And so yes. having a person in the way is completely wasteful. For sure, for sure. So we always like to kick off these interviews with this is about people, purpose and profits. What does that mean to you? What resonates with you? Is it a balance of all three or in this season of your business or career that maybe one stronger than the other? So I'd be curious on your thoughts about those three. Well, I like the order that, that you put it in, and there's probably more than just, hey, a logical thought process around it. It's probably an intuition and an emotional experience around saying people first, and mm -hmm. it's the foundation for everything else. So for me, I resonate a lot with natural occurrences. Things that happen in nature really stand out to me as, hey, pay attention if you follow this rhythm in all likelihood you'll achieve success. So in gardening, it's the quality of the seed and the soil, not necessarily what you then put on top of it, although that is very helpful. If you just water, things will be okay, but if you water and fertilize, even better. And then if you water, fertilize, and talk to it, apparently even better <laughs> in the gardening world. And so I think I just love this formula because when you, when you can take a look at the people aspect and get people in the highest degrees of well-being and care and firing on all cylinders, then the purpose and profit kind of take care of themselves a little bit. I love that. 
And I definitely agree with it. And I think a lot of people do miss that mark, you know, especially when they get into business, they make it all about business, but they forget how important it is to connect with people and to understand, you know, with them on that human level. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm going to put gas in my car, but um, I wanted to go really fast and I used the worst quality gas I could find. There's so many analogies that we can right. put into this yeah. equation. Yeah, and one of the things I often teach too is people make products and services for people. And even if you have automation or AI or something involved, it still is around a people need, you know? And you think about, it'll be kind of funny when we talk about emotional intelligence, but people mostly buy emotionally uh, or their needs. So if we don't have any way of knowing that there's no algorithm that's gonna know the perfect scientific thing <laughs> that somebody's going to need uh, to be able to do that. And uh, there's such a art form that comes out of what we do, even though we could, scientifically produced efficiently and effectively, it's still based off of some form of creativity and art that then gets systematized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a great point, Brian, because, you know, we make decisions emotionally and then we justify them logically. But if we're unaware mm -hmm. how we're emotionally driven, our justification is not very logical. <laughs> what do you find is one of the most important attributes to have when you work with people? Oh, one, the most important when I ask my son questions like what's your favorite color or your favorite food he's like why why does there need to be a favorite can't there be lots of them right so I mean in essence though I think to answer your question and sometimes this comes across as sounding very selfish but I think the most important thing is you have to have yourself straight it's the most important part in people relationships is you have have to have taken care of yourself and have yourself grounded and identified, you know, your value system and your belief system and how those things show up for you in the present and how they help you and how they hinder you and the elements of your personality, what your strengths and your weaknesses are. And you have to kind of have that all figured out so you can be the best for and with other people. And the beautiful thing about our evolution as human beings, I believe, is that we are constantly learning these things learning, about ourselves. Definitely. Unfortunately, some of us don't start until we're in our 40s or 50s because we've been taught that doing this kind of stuff is selfish and you need to be focused on other people. And no, 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 your feelings are, are meaningless because, you know, this end result is much more important than you are. And all of that sort of puts us on the back burner for a really long time. And that's kind of why we find ourselves in adulthood positions where we aren't firing on all cylinders and we're emotionally unwell. So we're mentally unwell and we're physically unwell. And we do a lot of self-soothing instead of self-caring. Yeah, lots of bad things happen. I love that. Thank you. You know, you make me think, you know, going back to our middle word of our show about purpose. If you don't have self-care, can you really know your purpose or is it almost drowned out because you just got so much other stuff going on you can't hear that purpose well if we consider what is self-care really about and oftentimes you know physiologically self-care is about managing our stress managing our well-being 
So in emotional intelligence, there's four pillars to well-being. So one is self-regard, which is understanding our strengths and our weaknesses. So basically it's knowing like, where do my talents lie? And where do my talents not lie? <laughs> Putting myself in the position of, or arenas of my strengths as often as possible, because then I, I really get to play the game. I get to be part of life. And, but self-regard isn't just about knowing them. It's about loving the wholeness of both of those things. So yeah, these are gaps. These are things I don't know how to do. And I love myself just the same. I don't need to close that gap in order to love myself. And then self-actualization is another one. That's the constant pursuit of growth and development and learning. So we think when we're a kid, oftentimes the wellness of kids at a very young age is pretty high. Like you see most kids and they seem like they're pretty like, well, they're having so much fun. <laughs> and they could be like playing with dirt. And you just think, wow, yeah. how is playing with the dirt so much fun? And like, it's because it's the first time I've ever played with dirt in this way. And they're exploring it and learning about it and their curiosity is on a high. And, you know, if we continue to do that in adulthood, it really does feel good to be dedicating to things that we are passionate about. The, the third element is our inter interpersonal relationships. We can all probably agree when we are around people that we feel supported by and loved by, that we belong in, that acknowledge and validate us, that we feel fantastic. And when we do that for other people, we feel fantastic because we see it filling their bucket. And that fills our own bucket in return. It's such a nice demonstration of the law of reciprocity and action. And then the fourth element is optimism. You know, do I have a natural tendency to look positively on life because I believe I can impact it positively? Well, I mean, these four things line up to be a demonstration of feeling well emotionally. That's so powerful. And, you know, it, since you talked the last one, um, how can people develop that optimism? Because I find that that's probably one of the most necessary things to have in business, especially when things don't go our way. <laughs> so how do we keep that optimism? And if I can also add to what you answer with this too, is, is can optimism be developed and learned? Like I, I met someone a while ago who uh, took pride and um, identity behind someone said, why are you always so negative? And she says, because I'm a realist. And I was like, because they took identity to that, I was like, I don't know if optimism is, is something, I mean, I, I believe everyone can, but there's people who like to be in another camp on purpose. I'm kind of curious in the answer, Cat yeah. is, is it something that people can learn? So one, yes, optimism is, is something that people can learn. In emotional intelligence, everything is skill-based. So you can learn how to do all of it. But now we're talking about personality tend and tendencies based out of our personality. I also think we need a defining moment here. Like let's pull out, not the thesaurus, but let's pull out the dictionary because we have an, a misuse of a word. Why are you so negative? I'm a realist. Well, the opposite of optimism is not realism. <laughs> the opposite of optimism is pessimism. Mm -hmm. So when people say I'm not optimistic, generally under the personality spectrum, the, the scale is optimism. It's not optimism to pessimism. It's just a scale of optimism. So you might be low on the optimistic scale, which means you generally look towards the things that will go wrong first or what could go wrong and why it won't work out. And some people call that reality testing, but that is a false definition. 
because optimism in and of itself does not mean I go in with rose colored glasses and think everything's going to be great. And I got my pom poms, nothing to worry about. My head's in the clouds. No, that's blind optimism. Optimism as an EQ skill is equally balanced with reality testing, which is another EQ skill. And so when we think about learning optimism, first is identifying what's my tendency. Do I go, everything's going to be awesome, or do I go, everything's going to suck? Neither of those are an EQ skill of optimism. They're both on the underdeveloped <laughs> side of optimism. <laughs> so what is optimism is, if I look optimistically, everything's going to be great then I have to learn how to tweak that and dial with reality testing. Objectively, what's really going on? If I remove my emotional influence, can I be unbiased and see what's really going on? That's a good demonstration of optimism. If I happen to be low on the optimism scale and look towards everything's going to be awful, then generally the practice is, okay, so you thought that, great. Just leave that on the piece of paper for a second and now turn and plan for best case scenario. And as you plan for best case scenario, it might be a challenge to do that because maybe you're not used to planning for best case scenario, resources, time, energy, steps to take. Then when you're done that full plan, take a look at that piece of paper where you wrote down worst case scenario. Do you even believe after doing all of that planning that that's even a possibility? And if you do, then plan for the worst case scenario. Now you're just planned for everything. And generally what ends up happening is people have gotten a creative solution in place for the problem that they're trying to solve rather than uh, an extreme in one or the other. Mm. Love that. And it, it makes me think of um, something that I, I don't recall what book I've seen it in, but it showed a cup that was, you know, half full. And, you know, they say that optimism is seeing it as half full. The other one, the uh, pessimism is seeing it as half empty. But then there was another thing next to it saying data, basically looking at the numbers, looking at what's the actually outcome, like what's in reality happening. So that, that was kind of refreshing. And I love the way you explained it because that, that kind of puts things in perspective. Mm. And an, an engineer will say it's half liquid, half air. So it's full. <laughs> yeah, so once again, it's in, your in chosen perspective. perspective. Right, and an emotional intelligence would say, coach would say it's both. It's half empty or yeah. half full. Both, right. both can be right. correct depending on your perspective. Exactly. Or the cup is too, twice too big. <laughs> half too small. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense. but <laughs> Yeah, that's, that still works. Um, when we think about, because uh, you help teams and pretty large organizations as well um, but how does how do you think emotional intelligence work uh, really resonates with maybe the solopreneurs or the small to medium-sized businesses because i think it, it uh, my assumption is it applies to everyone but is there anything that's special in the smaller uh, smaller kind of businesses well i i am so i do work with the spectrum which is really quite nice. What I find happens in the smaller businesses is there's just a level of intimacy that is necessary because your culture is a very small group of people and the accountability when you're in a small group of people is so much more intense. Mm. So if we look at big organizations, 
the cultural tone is set by a few people at the top of your hierarchical chart. Like they, they set the tone and the climate for your culture. If they behave poorly, everyone's looking at that and going, turns out we tolerate that. Turns out we can also do that. And it's really hard to hold other people accountable if those individuals at the top aren't acting in alignment to the values, the writing, the mission, the purpose, all of that sort of stuff. So in large companies, it's necessary to start with your executive team and make sure they are emotionally intelligent and holding each other accountable to that. And then they have to rein that down over and over again to every leader and employee that works in that company. In a smaller company, you have less of the hierarchical stuff going on. And if you do, you aren't levels away from each other. You might be one <laughs> or there might be zero or you might have someone who's like the head of marketing and you got a CEO, but basically they're singular people in singular roles. Nobody else reports to them, right? And so what, what really is necessary and what happens a lot more often is you really have to strengthen the interpersonal relationship realm of emotional intelligence so that it becomes a lot easier to work on the things like emotional expression, assertiveness, empathy, to work on the other skills because they, they start from the depths of really solid relationships. Mm. I wish I could find this link, but I went through a local startup community here in the Northwest and they actually had this survey, these kind of questions on before you choose a business partner, mm. you want to do these things because if you can't agree before you get yourself legally entitled together, yeah. uh, and I think, yeah, do you ever do anything like that? Or, Cause I could see like those emotional, like how well, how well do you make decisions together or being clear on roles and and how we are going to interact because you could have very different personalities that could backfire once you get enmeshed in a business together yeah so i'm working with a company right now actually entirely pro bono they're a small startup company three individuals and they've decided to work together however and they're all sort of equally you know stakes in However, one individual is assuming the entire financial responsibility. And in our first session, I was like, hmm, that is going to be so hard emotionally for one person to carry that weight. And basically, we opened the door to a conversation of how the other people felt about the financial welfare, the financial responsibility, financial expectations. And during that call, even though it was virtual, you could see the stress melting away from the one person who was holding the full responsibility as others began to talk about their trust in each other, their trust in that individual, how much they cared about, how much they wanted to also have more responsibility. And I was just like, how did you guys not talk about this before? Because right. Brian, to your point, these things that we withhold in thinking that if I share that, I'm gonna scare people away. If I share that, what if they don't like it? Well, what if you share it and they do? What if you share it and they, you know, do want to support, do want to encourage, do want to hold some of the responsibility? Isn't that all good? If they don't, well, okay, so they don't. Does that mean that you're bound to each other forever? No. When people don't agree, we make decisions to do something differently, right? When we do agree, we're like, yes, we agree. And now we're stronger together because of that. So it's really important. And I want to ask a question because um, I was watching Oprah a while back and I think it was emotional <laughs> intelligence. It was about the book, Emotional Intelligence. And she said that for the first time, she was able to understand why her business did that well. And it was because she was an empath. 
So I was wondering if, you know, there is a connection and, you know, what is your advice for, for people and how can they become more of an empath to, to grow their business and maybe connect better with people? So brilliant here. That's a brilliant question, Kalina and props to Oprah. And she is also one of my favorite individuals, more so because of her emotional self-awareness journey than anything related to empath. But part of her journey is probably also in discovering empath as a personality trait. So people have intuition and really great intuition. They connect and understand how other people are feeling sometimes without that person needing to say anything. They just feel it. So empathy as an emotional intelligence skill is very different than being an empath. Empathy is a skill. We learn how to use it. It is essentially our ability to understand someone else's perspective. So if I can't feel how you're feeling, how do I understand your perspective? Generally, I ask questions to get you to keep talking. <laughs> and I ask as many questions as I need until I can go, oh, I get it. And when I get it, I then act or behave with respect to my getting it. Most of the time we see people fall short of that. They go, I get it. And then they do something in complete disregard of getting it. And they're like, so you didn't get yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> you actually didn't get it. Right. And so one of the things that is really beneficial in, in the sort of skill set of empathy is identifying how do I feel when I connect to how someone else is feeling, even if I think what they're feeling or experience is ridiculous or I disagree with it. And that is the skill of empathy. And most of us will go, oh shit, I've never gone that far. I've, I've stopped at the, that's ridiculous and went, well, I get it. It's ridiculous though. And then we behave in a way that conflicts with saying, I get it. It's so conversations. Important. And thank you for, you yeah. know, explaining the two, because it's so important to, to understand the difference between the two. You can't really learn to be an empath. It's one of those things, mm -hmm. you know, by five, our personality is set. And so if by five you're an empath, then great, you'll be an empath. And if you connect with people right now quite easily and intuitively, we got to watch ourselves because sometimes that can suck us into their drama or their emotional state, and that can hinder our ability to be objective. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we, that could be ruinous. It can be ruinous to the relationship, can be ruinous to decision-making, can be ruinous to our own self-care. So we have to make sure we balance. And oftentimes the balancing factor is assertiveness. So staying grounded in our own beliefs, our own values, our own feelings, we have to know what those things are. And that's part of our emotional self-awareness. So we can balance these two skills at the same time. And since we're, we are talking about it, if, um, you know, Brian, sorry, I keep, I take over. So, um, cause the partnership I find is good. this is so, um, such a challenging aspect for coaches because they do want to help out and then they do become involved too much in their clients, you know, problems. So how do we, um, go to a place where we don't necessarily take on other people's issues, but become more of a listener? <laughs> well, you said it right there. How do we not take on response? Coaching does not equal responsibility to the result. And understanding that as a coach is pivotal. 
My job is to be here to position an individual to hold up the mirror, look really closely at what needs to be looked at. When they're looking in the wrong the direction, to turn their head and get them to look in the direction that they need to be looking in, to highlight things like, what about, what if, potentially, this is an exercise you need to do and stay committed to the exercise, holding people accountable to what did you learn last week? How did you apply it? And when people come back and say, I didn't go, okay, is there a reason why you didn't? As opposed to saying, you know, okay, oh, I did something wrong where they didn't want to. Like, no, a client engages with a coach for guidance and teaching. But if a client engages with you as a coach and in that discovery, they say, look, I'm holding you responsible for these kinds of outcomes. Coach, you should run. This is not the right kind of client. <laughs> You know, I just want to, because I'm thinking of the difference when, you know, someone just doesn't feel that someone is too, like caring enough. So, so coaches transition more into the role of a friend. So how do we create those boundaries? Like, how do we become more aware of them doing that? Like the coaches doing that? Yeah, no different than when we do in leader to direct report. It's the exact, it's the exact same. So the interpersonal relationship realm means I do care about you and I'm interested in your greatest amount of success. And I'm also holding you accountable to what you need to do to make that happen. And it's having a very firm line on what exactly that looks like and setting those boundaries early on and being very clear about them whenever they seem to muddy revisiting the expectation and those clarities and boundaries is essential in a leader to direct report relationship, a coach to client relationship, a parent to child relationship. It's all the same. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. But I love it. But one of the things I learned as a leadership coach, but it really came into just in my own entrepreneurial journey as a coach is to have clarity around uh, the type of clients that work well for me, with me. And some of that is I need someone who can let me speak to them directly and hold them accountable. You know, I think having those agreements up front and even before you take on the client, you know, mm -hmm. being really sure on is that the kind of relationship going forward. So one of the things I want to follow up with you, um, Teresa, is you're saying some of the stuff which makes me think how emotional intelligence sometimes is rebranded or shows up in other things. And I kind of thought about human-centered design. And human-centered design, from the client's perspective or the customer's perspective, it is all about what are the five senses that people want to experience when they engage. And to me, I thought, boy, that's almost like an, an emotional intelligence thing. So well, they are called feelings for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Our limbic system is connected to our five senses. And so when we ask mm. people, how are you feeling? Oftentimes there's a pause in there, right? Maybe pay attention when you say, hey, how are you feeling? Oftentimes there's a pause. Very, very frequently there's this like fine response. So if you get one of the standard responses, fine, okay, whatever, then you know they're just on autopilot. They're not paying attention whatsoever. But if you get someone who pauses, looks up, and then responds with something, you know for a moment they actually considered what they physically were feeling like. Now they may not have paid attention long enough to answer accurately, but they at least gave it consideration. And when someone asks us that question, that's exactly what we need to do to be emotionally self-aware, which is the foundation of emotional intelligence, is we need to pause, look up and go, what am I sensing? Oh, 
I've got a knot at the base of my throat. What does that mean for me? That means I'm feeling a little anxious. So I would say I'm feeling a little anxious. And they would go, oh, what about? I don't actually know. <laughs> I know I have this tension at the base of my throat, but I'm not really sure what that's all about. If I think about it, what do I have coming up? What did I just come from? I just had an argument with my son. Mm, that's probably it. I'm carrying an emotion from an experience I recently had, or I've got a meeting with my boss this afternoon and it's about a proposal for resources and a new project and I'm feeling all nervous about that. Oh, I'm already experiencing something that's going to happen in the future. Mm. Love it. That's great. You're, you make me want to just be here and like listen to you all day. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lovely compliment thank you <laughs> i could talk all day about it <laughs> I love would it. you say would you say that is purpose though because i'm curious to, to see if it's just something you just really love or would you call it purpose there's no difference no no there's no difference when i became this role as an entrepreneur and labeled the business and said it I was already doing it all the time anyways. And in fact, for years, just didn't label it this. And uh, about 20, 18, 20 years ago, an individual that I was working with, we embarked on a lot of conversations around life. And she had said to me then, she's like, you should be a life coach. And life coaches weren't something that were as common now. And I, I looked at her and I had like a, the furrowed eyebrow looking like, why the hell would I ever want to do that? <laughs> She's you're just really good at helping people to consider perspectives and look internally and think about what they feel and what they're grounded by. And I'm like, yeah, that's because that's how I do it. Like it just made total sense to me. Like, well, that's how I go about doing it. So wouldn't that be how everyone goes about doing it? Now, since then, I've cultivated a bunch of skills about how to navigate those through, through those things and help people to navigate through those things. But in essence, she identified my purpose a lot, a lot sooner than I was able to articulate it on paper. Hmm. I mm. love that. I, I have a similar story where um, when I first got into operational leadership at a healthcare place, uh, I used to work with our, our learning and organizational development person. And anyways, somehow she came up to me and said, Brian, wherever you are teaching people, you will be happy. And I like, I never realized that in myself until someone else pointed it out. So it's, it's fascinating from an emotional intelligence perspective. Sometimes we really need these outside people full of empathy to help us see maybe what we can't see in ourselves. So I love that. Well, you know, Simon Sinek and the Y Institute has, um, I believe it's a course about discovering your why. And one of the primary exercises in discovering your why is to talk to your close circle of friends mm -hmm. and ask them like, why are you my friend? And then they would say things like, well, you're fun and you're funny and I like being around you and this and you're like, okay, well, so that's the definition of a friend. Great. Well, you know, why, why am I your friend? Like you kind of push them on it and they say, well, you're loyal and reliable. And I could talk to you about anything. You're like, that's a good definition of a best friend. You know, what is it? Why do you stick around? Why do you come back? Like really dig deep. Why are we friends? What is it about me? And eventually they will get to the statement around when I'm with you, you, and then they insert what it is that you do for them. You inspire me. You motivate me towards change. You get me to think about things in a way I never thought about. You spark innovation within me. They'll tell you 
what it is that is your purpose that you naturally give to other people. And so it is no wonder that it does require sort of other people to help us discover that purpose sometimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We can discover it on our own though. You know, how how do we go about navigating? Because I, and I'm asking because there's people that love multiple things. And, you know, there's people that are really in love with music and then, you know, design and then, you know, maybe coaching. So how do we become more clear about what is that passion, that, that, that fire? Or does it have to be one thing or can it be, you know, a combination of multiple things? Yes, of course, it could be a combination. If we think it's one thing and then, you know, it doesn't end up being that thing, we're kind of let down, right? It's also, I think, that distinction between um, purpose-driven work and purpose-driven life. So work is a part of my life. If I find my purpose in my work, fantastic. Then I have a life of purpose. <laughs> if I find my purpose in my hobbies, fantastic. I have a life of purpose. I do something different for work because I also need a paycheck to pay for all of these things that I need, food on the table, shelter, clothing, all that sort of stuff, right? Also, it pays for my hobbies. I think what often is a barrier for people is the belief that work must be the purpose. And I don't think that that is the truth. And, you know, it it makes sense because I've seen a lot of people that are just absolutely Oh my goodness. I'm in a computer in a community of singers. And, you know, for me, it's just a, a passion is not necessarily my purpose. <laughs> it's not something that you know, I could do. It's just, you know, it's a hobby, but there are people that are so, so good at it yet. They don't feel that if they did that for, for as a job, they would probably end up dreading it. So they steer clear of making that their, you know, purpose. Yeah. There's like, there's almost, like a checklist of criteria for, you know, your listeners that are like, tell me exactly what I'm looking for here. Here's a four quadrant checklist. Being able to identify maybe the intersection between what I love to do. So we're like passion driven, motivated internally, what I'm good at. So I have talent and this is objective talent (laughs) because we've all watched um, like the voice, not really the voice wouldn't be a good one, but American Idol in the early days, you know, sometimes America's got talent and you're kind of like, ooh, this person is kind of blindly going about, they're not really good at what they're doing. (laughs) Um, What the world needs and what you can get paid for. And so when when we fill those four criteria, then what we end up having is a financial expression of our purpose. So a lot of people would call that work. When we only fill three of those categories, not the getting paid one, then we have a hobby that fills our life with purpose. And we go to work in something that we enjoy doing and we're good at, but, but you know, maybe it's, I don't love it to the ends of the earth, but I'm good at it. And so, you know, it's okay. I, I like going to work. That's okay. This idea of everything has to be at this level (laughs) i have no word to articulate that level except to sing it to be at that level is is oftentimes i believe a descriptive barrier that then gets people thinking they aren't at it Mm. and that they have to keep reaching and changing things and whatever i'm like no i don't think that's the case good enough can be good enough I'll also add, sometimes you got to go a little deeper because sometimes they actually fulfill the mission 
without knowing it. So one of my backgrounds is theater and I used to love directing on the stage and acting. And when I got in the corporate world, I wasn't acting. But when I started consulting, I realized everything I loved about the stage is what I was actually doing as a coach. I was telling a story instead of a scripted story. My client was the story. I was able to be as a teacher. I'm now on stage entertaining people, but changing their life. You know, so I think there's other ways that what we love to do, sometimes it isn't the singing or the acting right. that we love. It's the other parts of it. And I think if you recognize that, then you can start to see I'm applying this in my work and my life. Sometimes I'm singing, sometimes I'm coaching, but both ways it's fulfilling what I'm trying to do. That's the distinction between why and what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the why is achieved in all of these what's, all of these roles and hats that I'll put on. And generally where people feel unwell is they're wearing hats that are not connected to their why. And so they yeah. feel like their life is driven in a direction that is meaningless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what's next for you? What's coming up? And we want to make sure that uh, just like Kat and I aren't ready for this conversation. And I know the people watching are going to want to know how can they learn and follow and hear more from you and what's out there. So like first thing that's coming up next is my podcast with Reese Thomas, TNT 2.0, because it's season two of Thomas and Teresa (laughs) launches on October 4th. So I'm very excited about that. October 22nd at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time is a one-hour webinar called The Antidote to Toxic Behaviors. And basically, this is part of my hashtag Love Tornadoes initiative. So as you as an individual works on your emotional intelligence, what you end up doing is you end up generating emotions that are much more on the pleasant scale than unpleasant scale. So you create a sense of well-being, which creates your own little love tornado. And as we come together and learn these kinds of things around emotional intelligence, we create a really big love tornado. And all of the proceeds to my webinars go direct, are 100% gifted to a charitable organization. And the one in October is Hats On for Awareness, which is a mental health charity. And then to find out about like all of the stuff that I have going on for organizations, individuals, and webinars is directly from my website, which is a fairly easy one to remember. No, it isn't. Just remember the cues. It's the triple W's, <laughs> www.iqeqtq.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, any, any final words that you want to share, either you or Catalina? Oh, well, Kat, let me just push it over to you. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think you've covered so much, and I actually really want to thank you for sharing so openly so much of, of your wisdom because, you know, it's making me want to kind of step up my game, seeing you be so, you know, certain about the way you are, you know, transcribing and you're telling the stories and you know the, the terms and the way to approach. I mean, any questions I asked, you just answered it so easily. And I think sometimes for me, it gets caught, like, you know, in translation, it's lost. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I think you said the um, standards high, and I really love that because it challenges people to, you know, kind of like, okay, 
I can do what I love, but I have to, you know, have that high standard in order to help and in order to, to make a difference. I think that's the difference in finding your spiral of genius or your zone of genius, the space that just is the full, full expression of why and how you're here. And it like, it feels really, really good for it to be a hundred percent of what I'm doing and not be distracted by anything else. Because the truth is the other things I was doing was a distraction from it and keeping me away from it, even though I was good at those things, which is sometimes one of those barriers in purpose is going, but I'm good at this over here. And people are like, hey, you're really good at this. And I get lots of compliments on this, even though it might not jazz me up. So if we can be personally responsible to say, thank you, I appreciate the accolades, but this is my zone, then the dedication of our time to it elevates us in that zone of genius to a level that is still a little surprising to me even sometimes. And that comes from a foundation of having worked on myself regard. So I started my EQ journey when I was 24. I'm 47 now. It's an ongoing journey. Like I keep learning about my emotions and how they show up and, and I get better at using all my EQ skills. And that will always, that'll be a continuous journey. You never really finish your emotional intelligence because it's skill-based. You have to use them. As soon as you stop using them, the skill goes away, <laughs> just like anything we've done, right? And so that might be my last sort of encouragement is you can read as many books about emotional intelligence as you want. You cannot be emotionally intelligent by reading about it. You have to do the skills, which means you have to understand strategies. You have to practice exercises. You do the behind the curtains work and you put the stuff into play. Course correction and pivoting is the name of the game in emotional intelligence development, where we behave abrasively and we go, oh, sorry, that is not what I intended. And we stop ourselves mid-sentence from a, you know, a rant about something, you know, you know what, I'm on a little bit of a rant here. And the more <laughs> we can call ourselves out on our emotionally poor behavior and course correct it, the better we will be at choosing the correct course of action. Beautifully said. Love it. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening and watching either on our YouTube channel or People, Purpose, and Profits on the Podcatcher of Choice. We have a Facebook page so you can follow us and see updates, or you can join our Facebook group and you can interact with Kat and I. And we're going to look at maybe opportunities where our, our guests can participate in there, but we'll have to figure that out going forward. So thank you, everybody, and look forward to seeing you next week.